0: The greatest value, Denny, I can say in terms of my own personal artistic development as, a, as an actress storyteller was to release my obligation to get it right.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Voracious Student and your podcast classroom I'm your host, Denis Lambert, and each week I talk to a new teacher about life and the arts. Kimberly Vaughn is my guest today. Kimberly Vaughn runs the Kimberly Vaughn Performance Studio, which offers classes and one on one coaching on musical auditions, scenes, and monologues, as well as industry master classes. Kimberly has also taught at Circle in the Square Theater School, Pace University, and other universities across the country. Kimberly also has a long list of credits as a performer, director, and dramaturg, including her Broadway debut as a performer in Dear Oscar and a Tony nomination as one of the producers of the musical Swinging on a Star. She is also the book writer for the new musical River Dreams, which is in its developmental process, heading towards a full production soon, which we chat a bit about. Perfectionism is really the focus of this episode. It's not a good goal. It's not what we want. I hope I'm not sounding preachy, but there was a lot of things Kimberly and I were interested in chatting about, but we really zero in on that and how it holds back actors auditioning and performing. Kimberly is an incredibly committed and passionate coach. I've worked with her a lot over the years, and so I can say firsthand that she really consistently demands that who she's working with jumps in wholeheartedly. Kimberly is the loveliest lady. She's also become a good friend. And I think that's all I have to say to set this up. Enjoy my episode with Kimberly Vaughn. Kimberly Vaughn, hello, hello, hello.
0: (laughs) Hello, hello, Denise.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you on here today.
0: Well, I'm delighted to be here for so many wonderful reasons, and it's really a privilege to be in this process with you today, so thanks.
1: So anyone listening who doesn't know Kimberly, Kimberly is an extraordinary coach and teacher, and that's what we're going to focus on uh, in this episode. However, you do and have done so many other things. So before we dive into your coaching and your teaching... What has been your favorite experience as a performer so far? And what has been your favorite experience as a producer, director, or dramaturg so far?
0: Love those questions. Thank you. I've focused for uh, decades on serving others, which has been a great nourishment to me. That notwithstanding... Why did I have a blast in my late teens and early 20s performing a number of the standard Broadway canon of musicals and leads in every one of them? Uh, and I only say that because I haven't done that work as consistently in the time that I've been focused on helping others to develop. So... It's, it's not an easy choice. However, I would have to say, based on who I was at the age of, let's say, nineteen twenty, who I was, my development, my personality, what, what baggage, if any, that I brought to it, playing the role of Sally Bowles with my salt and pepper short Bob wig on And knocking it out of the park seven nights in a row was likely the the thrill of my career. Sally was a great journey for me because she was very messy and unpredictable. And I was not. I was very put together and predictable. And we'll talk about that hopefully in the context of storytelling and acting because with rare exception, it ain't useful. So what I, the greatest value, Denny, I can say in terms of my own personal artistic development as a, as an actress storyteller was to release my obligation to get it right. And I'm sure we can all relate to that and get it right the first time. That was great. And I would say briefly, the second most thrilling would have to be Eve Harrington in applause. Because, again, she was a dangerous young woman. She was not a kind person. She was not a particularly compassionate or caring person. However, she was strategically brilliant and had a goal to get to the top and nothing stopped her from doing that. The reason I love Eve, and again, this is for your listeners, not to wax poetical. (laughs) The reason I love, love Eve is because she is a wounded child in the body of a very sensual young woman who knows how to get what she wants. And it's the wounded child that comes through in her breakout number one, Halloween. And it's another tour de force for the actress if the actress can connect with their own inner wound. And since I would say to a person, over the years anyway, we all bring a wound into our work. And I think it's a great gift that we have sustained it because it becomes our gold, if you will. She was loved by the audience because everyone sitting there knows what it is to get hurt, to be wounded and to struggle through that to become something, no matter what the cost is. That was thrilling, really thrilling.
1: I love it. Any favorite directing or producing experiences?
0: I would have to say producing would be Swinging on a Star, which premiered, well, in at good speed, and then opened on Broadway ni- late 95. You know, some stars came out of that. Uh that was a joy to do, a real joy. So that would that would be, I think, my favorite.
1: So how did you find your way into coaching and teaching? How did that happen? Why did that happen?
0: We, we've started to touch on it, Denny. And I want to grab a hold of a number of ideas and thoughts and design them in such a way that it, there's value here it's an ongoing gift. When I was auditioning a lot, I would feel myself some anxiety and some nerves, pretty normal for that situation. And I would notice that I wasn't alone, that there were quite a number of people in the audition process who were chatting and giggling and focused on Entertaining each other before going into the room. Now, I understand, obviously, as a human being, that what I perceive that to be is I'm so nervous that I can't focus. So I'm going to see if I can relax myself by simply having a conversation with a total stranger. And... I bet there are people that will listen and go, did that every time, always got a call back. So it's not a one size fits all situation. The point is that giving ourselves permission to love what we do and do what we love in a loving, open, self compassionate, and improvisational way. I've noted over the course of many years, is not a walk in the park for most aspiring actors. There are much more, I'm speaking from experience, uh, with, with enormous empathy because I am one of the family. Such an incredible need to get it right and make an impression. And I would have to say, by and large, potentially, that one of the reasons they were giggling and chatting was because they knew they hadn't done the homework necessary to walk in that room and really shine for themselves, not for the table, but for themselves. And so what ends up happening, in those circumstances is that the actor is relegated to pushing and showing, pushing, showing, pushing, showing. And as we all know, whichever side of the table we happen to be on that day, that it lands like a lead weight. That the most important thing that the table needs to know is who we are. And so even if we walk in the room, without having done our homework to the degree we know we can, if we let go of that judgment, if we suspend any self-harm by attempting to fix something that we needed to fix prior to walking in the room, If we can suspend all of that and simply be present, chances are to this very day, we we will reach somebody behind the table. Our humanness will touch their humanness. And that at the end of the day is the bottom line. And I've just gone from A to Z really. There's so much to discuss in between. But I I would like to add a quick thought, which is, while it might be obvious, the four or two or six folks left for each role after the final callback, it will matter deeply the sense of familiarity the table has with the human being. I loved his humanity. I loved his giggle. I loved his smile. And all four are equally talented. It's going to be the human factor. And the human factor above all else is One of the bottom lines in terms of why I teach and how I teach.
1: I love what you brought up there about the waiting room. I remember years ago thinking that if I ever wrote a book that had anything to do with acting, it would be about the waiting room. It feels like there should be courses in how to navigate the waiting room alone. I mean, I remember at one point starting to go to auditions with earphones in my ears, and funny how my friends would just sort of smile and know not to come bother me. Exactly.
0: And and what that is, Denny, from my perspective, is ownership. It's ownership of your right to be there, waiting in the waiting room. It's ownership of your right you've earned to walk into that room and knock it out of the park. It's your ownership to connect with the table as a human being. With the pianist as a human being. One of the finest casting directors of a number I've worked with, and since I've worked with a number, I won't mention this person's name, but it's so obvious. And yet, when he would say it in master classes I run with industry folks, we assume, I might be paraphrasing a little, we assume you can sing, dance, and act since it's musical theater. Who are you? We must find out who you are. Or the rest doesn't matter. I'm adding that. He didn't say, or the rest doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. Let's start talking about some of the nitty gritty, some specifics that come up in in your work with folks. And I'd love to start with an idea that you already brought up. So you're talking about playing Sally Bowles and the push and pull between (laughs) control and chaos and, you know, knowing what to do and surrender. And, you know, one of the things you said you maybe wanted to chat about was precision and flexibility, which I feel is perhaps tied in here. I know I can certainly be a control freak. And I know a lot of my work has been about letting go over the years. Talk to me about anything in there that jumps out at you.
0: Sure. Well, the the word that leaps for and will certainly include precision and flexibility, and it's all it really is a, of a piece, actually, is perfectionism. I think it's probably the greatest nemesis of, of all for any number of us in the industry, whether we're acting, directing, producing, dancing, painting, graphic design, it's it's gotta be better, it's gotta be better, it's gotta be better. And if we will simply get the idea, which after low these many decades it is dawning on me, it's never going to be finished. There's always more to do, and that's the artist at work. That's the creative process. So to to connect a dot, my own personal journey, had to get it right the first time, had to look together, had to say the right words and just be altogether a doll, (laughs) like a mannequin sort of type person. And underneath that, and I'm sharing this personally because it is a benchmark for, if not everyone, most of us in the industry, Underneath that was a a most incredible tiger raging forth internally. And and you can imagine that. So listen up here, because this is, to me, enormous and so simple. You can imagine then if I'm enraged and I have to be perfect, what happens to my job when I'm attempting to sing a high C? I cannot be a human being if I implode what makes me a human being. And when we are trained, and I believe we are trained, we do not come out of the womb, if I may be so graphic, uh, perfectionists. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So our training, whether it be that or whatever the case may be, it's highly individualized and it's very, Oh, nefarious in, in all the all the slippery. Slippery, perfect. Slippery in, in how everything, you know, plugs together to make us nutso, you know, as as kids and little people. But always the struggle to get it right, to perform well, get the A's, get the show, uh, be be the head of the student council, all of that stuff. And it's all great. And we've, we've we've paid a price for making it to the head of student council or yum yum in the Mikado uh, in, the, in the eighth grade. We've paid this price, haven't we? However, the tragedy, Denis, and that's why I'm so devoted and dedicated to what I do, is that we pay this price every time we walk in to an audition. And I I will go out on a limb and say that I don't think that excludes the Tony winners or, or, or the Emmy winners, et cetera, because short of a lobotomy, that pressure to perform it correctly the first time is always there. And so one of the most important things that we get to in the work, and it's something I would love to share, is the aha moment where the student goes, I liked what I just did. I actually liked me in this moment. And that's the beginning of a whole new level of reality for the student. So I I hope that's clear that. Perfectionism compromises our innate gifts, the gifts we brought in with us that were flowing freely before, let's say, six or seven, and our instincts, which were flowing freely before we became a certain age. Give me a man and give me a child until he's seven, and I'll give you the man. Being a child can be a danger zone, even when the parents are amazing. But we're not going to have a psychology session right now. We don't need to go deeper into that. Um, but one of one of the critical aspects of perfectionism and uh, precision versus flexibility. Uh, is that if we, if we, when we get to that place of flexibility, then we become improvisational as storytellers. And above all else, who are you? The casting director asked, I am an improvisational being. I'm a being, a being who, I am a being who acts on impulse. And so part of the work is to get the storyteller, the actor, the singer back to the impulse, back to the instinct, back to the flexibility, because we didn't plan we were going to knock our, this never happened. Knock our best friend off his tricycle and and grab it and ride it for an hour without him being able to catch us. I made that up. We don't plan that stuff. That's on instinct. That's on impulse. So when we walk in the room, that's the goal—to have done the homework and then to let it go. So the precision piece of it, Denny, is I, to, for me your one of the finest acting developmental storytelling people I've, I've ever known or worked with. Uh, That wasn't very eloquent, but the point is, you're very welcome. I'll say it a different way because I I want to, and you, you understand the joy of acting. I, I will say because your process of Preparation is all. You leave no stone unturned. And going back to the kids in the waiting room for a moment, if that pro if the, if all the stones, let's say 90% of the stones, haven't been unturned, we ask the questions and dig deeper and deeper. And how do I relate to this guy or this gal? And we walk into the room. What's going to kick in the need to get it right. We haven't done the homework. The need to get it right is going to kick in and we're not going to be at home. And therefore, the casting director won't have the opportunity uh, to find out who we are. Just did that. make
1: Absolutely. Sense? And I have a bunch of things I want to add on. I love that you're attacking, in a way, perfectionism so strongly, and we're certainly not the first two people to talk about it. In fact, many people talk about it. Yeah. But I'm, by the same token, shocked how often I hear it as a badge of honor. I hear it as bragging rights. People will say, oh, well, I'm a perfectionist, you know, or- or. I, I can't remember what f- book I first read it in, but it, it might have been The Artist's Way, which I actually think I talked about in the last episode. But this idea that perfectionism is not a good goal. If you're working for perfect, you're in the wrong game. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I just have to agree that, you know, the Tony winners deal with this, too. That from my experience, from people I've talked to, et cetera, et cetera, it only gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> the insecurities. And the pressure gets worse. So deal with it now. Or even on a simpler example, you, know, I'll find myself sometimes in class with a student maybe not being able to handle the pressure of a note. I'm like, "Well, you have 30 minutes with a nurturing teacher here who's actually going to tell you why you know, what the note is or mm-hmm. why, why you may not be getting the callback. It's only going to get worse when the director just says, thank you," you know. Deal with this now, because it's only going to get harder. And if you make that director your dream director, it gets even harder than that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then in terms of preparation, the more you prepare, the more free you can be. And it's exactly, it can feel like a bit of a reverse psychology thing. And I find that when I'm kind of, when I haven't prepared as much or I'm winging it, that's when I hold on real, real tight.
0: Absolutely.
1: That's because I have nothing to actually hold on to. So I'm just gripping, gripping,
0: precisely. So again, In in the context of perfectionism, one is then holding on to his or her perfectionism.
1: So if you're working with a private client or a student in class Mm -hmm. and you see this going on. What might be some of the things you might say to them or what might be some exercises or suggestions you would give them?
0: Good. And I'll simply say. Until very recently, the last. Sixteen months have been on Zoom, for obvious reasons, and it was a blessing, uh, also because it helped people ma- begin to master the video process. So it, it was it had it had add on benefits. Still, in all, if we have stopped trusting the place of play and I do say this to my students, it might be better to open a flower shop. I mean that sincerely because, and I don't mean that unkindly. I, I'm going to offer something more substantial than that. Uh, but but I do say things like that also, Denis, because how much does it mean to you to live in your artistry and to be cast for living in your artistry? If it isn't everything, then there's an equivocation. And that equivocation might be, I can't I can't go to any more auditions because people are gonna find out that I'm a perfectionist and I don't know how to do anything else. Does this make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: so I give them permission to so uh so simple so simple but so so helpful jump up and down while they're saying the lyrics just jump up and down just jump up and down like a kid would if 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 he wants to stay up another hour and he's four and a half do you follow just Mm -hmm. because we 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 minimize those needs as adults don't we Don't we want to race outside with no clothes on because we just don't want to put clothes on when it's Mm -hmm. 95 degrees, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's, it's a playful example. However, (laughs) you get the point. If you're three, you don't think about clothing. You think about play. So when we lose that, the familiarity with this place of play within ourselves, then we, we have to rely on perfectionism. So jumping up and down, thrusting the arms out, it's something I learned from one of my f- initial acting teachers, um, oh, baby, back in the 70s, um, you know, thrust the arms out and 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 say, get away, and I will not, and you can't make me. Uh, It was a very psychologically focused class, but I learned a great deal about the, the imperative of emotional freedom in our work, not emotional vomiting. There's a huge difference. Emotional freedom, the freedom to emote, the freedom to be in motion with our feelings, in motion with our feelings e mo E-mo-ting. It's an inside job. And sometimes, Denny, it's as simple as saying, Sally, I didn't want to use an actual student's name. Sally, when was the last time you got angry? This morning, what happened? I dropped an egg on the floor. How angry did you get? I went ballistic. Tell me what you did. Do it again and thrust it into the material. And suddenly, suddenly, Denis, there is an improvisational, instinctive, impulsive experience happening for the student. This sounds elementary. And guess what, my dear Watson? It's profoundly so. Because if we, can, if we are no longer at home in our, the emotions we didn't even think twice about when we were little people, what's the point of walking in the room? Because Stephen or whomever it is might say, okay, that was very nice. Now, do it it as a a chimpanzee. And we'll we'll become internally hysterical. Or we'll do it as a chimpanzee. And we'll have a blast doing it. This place of play is imperative. And when we go into the room, and this is what I believe happened for you. Let me know if if this this resonates. And for those like you who do the homework within an inch of your lives so that you can let go. um, When we go into the room and... Know what we want, and simply become improvisational and instinctive in how we get there. And otherwise we, in other words, we've done the work, okay, and 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 that is the precision. And then we walk into the room and we allow flexibility mm-hmm. because we might have we might have every rehearsal cried on. Don't go. And in this moment in, in the room, w- w- we might scream it or whisper it.
1: I want to agree. What's also fun about having now done a number of these podcasts is that some of the similar ideas come up set in different ways. Mm-hmm. And another way of saying, I think what you're saying is something, a phrase that has come up a few times, which is, Uh, What before how, what is the story before, how am I going to tell it? What is the relationship before how I say this line? What is the world before? How do I interpret this? And that the, the deeper you steep yourself in the, what the relationship, the moment of that don't go, you don't have to worry about the how you're going to say it.
0: Right. That feels right. And, and so useful
1: and i think second secondly that letting go is a muscle too that surrender yeah. in the room is a muscle that can only be gained by doing it it's not right. like a, i did or i didn't or i wasn't and then i was you know you slowly chip away at it and you take a step backwards and you get a piece of material that scares the shit out of you and you take 10 steps backwards and then you find something that you instinctively understand immediately and you soar. And, you know, it's, it's a zigzaggy, frustrating, wonderful path, but I do think it ultimately gets better the more you do it.
0: I agree. And there's one other thought I wanted to add. When we walk out of the room and go, I had a blast. That's the bottom line. Because We're in the room to share our our artistry, to share our humanity, and to bring something which can only be unique because there's no one else like us in the world, into the room. And when we give over to that, and for some, the perfectionists, I'll, I'll add give in to that, I think everyone will benefit in the room. And my my instinct and knowing some of the casting directors over the years is that if they have fun because you're having fun, whether or not you are cast in the role for which you are in the room, you will absolutely be remembered. And isn't that a bridge being built? And it's all about building bridges. I think building bridges between our innate wisdom as storytellers, and that's the child within, that's the place of play within, pushing through the resistance to be vulnerable, As as young adults and middle-aged adults, et cetera, into a place of play once again, where there's flexibility, spontaneity, improvisation, and the precision of having done the work. Being in a place of joy in the audition is very different from being in a place of need to get it right or need to be impressive. Ultimately to walk out of that room and go, I love what I do. I love what I do. And maybe even a teardrop on your cheek. It's the whole ball game. Then yes, the role is icing on the cake. Then you're being celebrated with the role for being a human being, not a human doing.
1: I think something. Sometimes people forget, too, is that if you're thinking of this audition as this perfect package that I've crafted within an inch of its life with no room for play, there's this horrible thing that happens if you actually book the role and then you're like, oh, shit, I have to do it again. Mm. <laughs> or can I do it again? Or what did I do? Versus if you showed up and just were in rehearsal and got the role, it kind of feels like, well, I'll just continue rehearsing.
0: Yes. Yes. Love that. And it's so true. I think it's right on the money. And that continues throughout opening night and during the Tony voters attending and all of that, we're yes, always becoming.
1: Yes. I I took a class with Patsy Rodenberg years ago, and she told this great story about one of the famous British dames. I can't remember which one, but she was finishing a, like a two and a half year tour of, Antony and Cleopatra, or something like that, and someone asked her in the matinee, you know, you know, are are you happy? It's over, and she said, "No, I finally figured out today what that scene was about." Ah, I which love it. Which is a story I love.
0: I love that story. because it's it's so true. It's so true. My heart goes out to the uh, to piggyback on Patsy's uh, sharing. My heart goes out to the high school students who rehearse for a month and a half and do two shows. Yeah. And and of course it's wonderful, but a month of rehearsal, that's the bare minimum.
1: <laughs> and when you don't get it in the profession, I think you have to find a way to give it to yourself. Another thing you say is your voice is not for sale. Oh yeah. Tell me about that.
0: Great. Love talking about this. It's, it's, So at the heart of the process for singing storytellers, when the voice leads the story, we're in trouble. Now in the thirties, forties, and fifties, that was expected. We needed those big booming voices with no mics and all of that. Right. However, The voice follows the story. And I will add that the vocal piece of the puzzle can and will impede the story, impede your spontaneity, and ultimately the humanness you bring to your story. If the voice is all. And it's very tricky, Denis. I started out in opera. Indiana University. So I get it, I really do. And I tell my students, I get it, I get it. However, we want human beings, as this casting director asked, who are you, who sing, dance and act. I, God knows how many times I'm digressing, but I'll get right back on track because it's it's germane. How many times I've said to my students this? Oh God, that note. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If the casting director is not going to call you back because of one note, if the musical director is going to disregard your talent because of one note, we are all in trouble. So stop, stop focusing on sound and begin to focus on story. The sound follows the story. The sound is affected, enhanced, uh, propelled by the story. When I see a child crossing a street unattended, I'm going to yell, stop. I'm not going to think about where I'm placing it or how loud it is. That comes from an inner need to help, an inner need to be present an inner need to make a difference, the what you were talking about. If you walk into the room and it's all about your vocals, you're selling your vocals. Your voice is not for sale. You don't have to sing forte in the first eight bars when there's a mezzo forte or a pianissimo. What are you doing? (laughs) Do do you know? It's, it's really on a, on a, on a plane with perfectionism. My voice is who I am. And I, I, and I, I've suggested to my students, when are you, it's like, you know, um, the wizard, when are you going to come out from behind the machine? We want to know who's behind that sound. And so it's not about withholding your voice from the table. No, it's about allowing your voice to emerge on your story so that where the swell is already written into the melodic structure of the composition, you are there. But if I'm there at the first, you know, moment of the piece, you're not in the story. Baby, don't tell me you're in the story. Mm -hmm. You're in your story that my voice is all and I must relegate everything else to my voice. But to get back to your voice is not for sale. It's not for sale let your audience and the table is your audience let the audience earn the high B flat let the audience earn the forte why must you overwhelm them with sound such that they have no inkling of what it's doing in your story it's certainly not and in, in harmony with the language you're singing.
1: Mm-hmm. Here's a question. Do you remember yeah. when you started saying that? When did you start saying the voice is not for sale? Or has it's, it always been an issue? Or is it just human nature to hide? It's
0: all, it's all, I believe it's always been an issue. However, I love that you're asking this. Thank you. It's been within the last couple of years. And I liken it to, or I connect the need to over sing as in here it is, it's attached to the perfectionism. It's attached to the need to get it right. I notice it in more in those students that they've trained, 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 and they have great voices. And that is their, you know, that. Those are their horses, so to speak. And they're going to lead with that power.
1: Do you feel, and subjectively, obviously, that the pressure for perfectionism is getting worse, more intense in this modern world?
0: I'm, I'm looking at that. That's such a deep question. And I would... Suggests that there are reasons why, personal reasons why, perfectionism is hard to shake. Again, short of (laughs) a lobotomy, we have to learn to live with it. We have to learn to make friends with it. We have to learn to be able to say, Ah, here you are again, my friend. Thank you, but I don't need your help today. I'm going to sing this very gently because I'm singing to a sleeping babe. I'm not going to sing at a nine or a 10. I'm going to sing at a two or a three.
1: Which is another version of what before how. The what is that it's a baby, right? Not the yeah. how do I sound. Oh my, oh Just my Just for the God. listeners, right? There
0: you go. Thank you for the phrase, how do I sound? Because I do believe that the sound equals my value. And that's why I I turn it back toward the time in each of our lives when we were no longer enough as spontaneous, improvisational, delicious, unique creatures, that it had to get better. It had to get bigger. It had to get more formidable and brilliant. And while we strive for all of that and wish to be formidable and brilliant, and I say, here, here, not at the expense of the truth that we must find in our storytelling, or we'll walk in and out of the room and and have a, lacklustre experience because we really didn't bring our truth into the sound. This is a huge topic, Denny.
1: Of course, of course. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes. And I'm 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 trusting that we've got some kernels there for you.
1: Lots of it. Yeah. We have to wrap up soon-ish. So I kind of want to circle back to something we sort of talked about at the beginning. What do you love about teaching? And could you tell me a little bit more about how you found that this was a good fit for you that this was rewarding for you and and how is it rewarding for you
0: In an era I'm speaking again personally when I did not have a mentor per se my mentors were relatives who believed in my gifts and my individual deliciousness as, as a little girl a teenager a young adult etc so that was very sweet very reassuring what i chose in the context of shifting from performing to supporting others become performers become, I prefer the word storyteller, uh, is the the keen visceral understanding that without a go-to person who's on your team, whom you trust, depending on all the other variables in one's individual personal life, family history being a big part of that one in this city in this business can feel a bit rudderless a bit overwhelmed a bit unsure if not a lot a lot a lot and so for me to to be that person who is striving to serve the student as persons and performers so that they don't walk in the room as, as, as human doings. They walk in the room as human beings and they trust that being who they are has great value. And it's just a matter of time that that will out. So there's nothing at this stage in my life, other than getting back on stage, which I would love to do at some point, that is more fulfilling than watching a performer. And that could be anywhere from 14 to 70 starting To understand who they are in the context of this business, how they function in the context of this business, and to develop compassion for themselves, patience for themselves, and confidence in the fact that they are one of a kind, valuable, and when the work is done, and then the flexibility is embraced magic as Ben Vereen would say magic happens to be a conduit for that is a profound privilege and joy and I never tire of it.
1: Kimberly, any upcoming projects in any realm that you'd like to share with us? I know you have some, so <laughs> yeah.
0: well it's, it's it's fun to mention them briefly. Yes, I and you know about both. Uh there will be a book uh, about the work. It's it's going it's going to speak of the human factor because it's everything. It's everything. Yeah. And there's a musical that has had staged readings and a lab at the York in 2015 and is being reworked again. Of of course, again, you know, we're in our 11th year or so. And those in the know would say, oh, you're the timing's perfect. You know, Uh, it takes a decade. Uh, Not always, not always. However, some of the great musicals were written in not less than 12, 10 years or so. So that's soothing. That's soothing. It's a, it's a balm to think about that by the same token, it's also a labor of love. And I, I, my goal is to simplify it and, reduce the character number and get it out to the regionals.
1: And And what is your involvement with the show? Like what's your role?
0: Writer. And I will say the folks who've been involved heretofore as the actors have have been real champions of the piece, Alan H. Green, um, Philip Boykin, Carrie Compare are, are all, had lead roles in in the piece and are eager to return. So when the actor says that, you know, we've got something, and nothing would please me more than to get it into a regional theater. By the way, it's called River Dreams. Uh, it's it's a, it's a working title. Uh, it's it's a good one, and by that I mean it makes sense because of the journey of the characters. So thank you. It's fun to talk about the future.
1: Of course. Kimberly, thank you so much for spending this time with me.
0: It's been my consummate pleasure and joy to be with you, Denny. Thanks so much for the opportunity.
1: I will put your website in uh, in the show notes. So if anyone is interested in working with Kimberly, which I highly, highly, highly recommend, you can find her and uh, reach out to her or just learn more about her. I adore you. I love you. Thank you.
0: I adore and love you, Denis. Thank you.
1: And that was our episode for this week. KimberlyVonPerformanceStudio.com is Kimberly's website, and that will be in the show notes if you would like to check it out. Kimberly so obviously loves her job and her work, and that energy is infectious, I wish you could have seen and not just heard how she comes alive physically talking about all this stuff, which is the kind of energy she encourages in you when she's working with you. I'm so glad she's writing a book about all this stuff. Think that may be out next year? In any case, thank you to Kimberly again for coming on the show. And thank you to you all for listening. This is episode 50. So whether this is your first, second, fifth, tenth, or fiftieth episode with us, I'm so happy to have you as a listener, and I hope you've learned as much from these amazing guests as I have. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Leave us a rating or review if you have time. Be well, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll talk to you soon.